Tonight we'll begin the book of Amos, and I think we will discover why the minor prophets are valuable for us today. Before we jump into the text, um, Amos is hands down the earliest of the minor prophets of the, the book of the Twelve at the end of your Old Testament, but he also rivals Isaiah as being the earliest book prophet. As we'll see in verse 1, he preached during the days when Uzziah was king, and Isaiah chapter 6 tells us that it was in the day that Uzziah died that he saw the Lord seated on the throne high and lifted up. And so Amos's ministry both begins and ends most likely before, um, before the ministry of Isaiah. Um, and so we pick up here in chapter 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah king of Judah and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Like most of the prophets, it opens with an introduction to the prophet himself, but this is by far the most limited, rivaling even Joel for lack of details. Here, unlike Joel, we're not even told his parentage. Amos of who? Which Amos? We're not told. In fact, all, we're said, all that's said here is that he came from among the shepherds of Tekoa. Now, Tekoa is a town that is south of Judah, even south of Bethlehem. And what's, what's significant for what we're about to read is that uh, his hometown is in the southern kingdom, in Judah, where David's lineage reigned. But his message, all of it, is to the northern kingdom, the ten tribes where Samaria was capital, um, which again sets him apart from many of the other prophets who were usually prophets among their own people. Um, second here, it says that he came from among the shepherds, and at a later point it says that he, he takes care of uh, animals like livestock as well as does some work in um, fig trees and vineyards. Okay? So, so he's a farmer by trade, but it's easy for us to read this language and think that this means that, um, that Amos was from kind of the poor and rural community but the word here for shepherd is not the usual word for shepherd. Um, it is a word that's used even of um, one of the kings of Moab for his focus on livestock where he was actually very wealthy. And so it's anywhere from like uh, shepherd like David watching over the flock by night like the Gospel of Luke to cattle trader like Texas big steer type. He could be anywhere in that range. But what's significant to us tonight is that Amos is not a professional prophet. He doesn't come from the priests. He's just a professional. He's just got a job. He has a career, and the Lord calls him out of that and gives him uh, words, the words of Amos, it says in verse 1. And then it tells us, like many of the prophets, the time in which he served. And it gives us two royal timestamps. In the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, as well as in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, or sometimes we refer to him as Jeroboam II, because the northern tribes all the way back after Solomon begin with Jeroboam I. But this is quite a bit 
later. So Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. And then finally, it says here, two years before the earthquake. And outside of the fact that Zechariah also recognizes and mentions this earthquake, we don't actually have a touch point for it. There's been some archaeological digs um, that have kind of narrowed in the decade in which um, Amos served, but since he's serving during the reign of Uzziah, that's not additional information. But after this little tiny biography that really tells us very little about Amos, the rest of the book is committed to the words of Amos. And later we'll see the visions of Amos. And so the focus is on the message more than the messenger. And look how it opens here in verse 2. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Okay, and so the intro to the book is this alarming and loud noise, which he refers to as the Lord roaring like a lion. And this is not just a loud noise, but it, it impacts ecologically Israel to the degree that the pastures of the shepherd, it's like they just wither up and die. And the top of Mount Carmel, um, which is usually protected from droughts because it's so, um, so weatherborne, even that kind of shrivels down. And then we get um, to Amos's first message in verse 3. And I want you to notice as we read this through, we'll read the whole thing through and then we'll come back and talk about it. I want you to notice that there's a set pattern to his words here. He selects a target. He says for three transgressions or for four, he lays out a judgment and then he talks about how that judgment is going to play out and then he moves on to the next target. But what you won't notice as we read this is that the places that he addresses, all of these neighbors of Israel, also have a significant pattern to them. He starts in the northwest and then goes down to the southwest and then goes up to the northeast and then goes down to the southeast. Okay? And so we'll come back and, uh, and ask why that is the case, but let's get the feel of it here in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the, upon the house of Hazael and shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants of the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. And just, just for a touch point, so we can see this pattern repeat, look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants of Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnants of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. Now, I know that a lot of those locations that we're reading, um, maybe even the large locations um, uh, like Damascus uh, or Gaza, as well as the small ones uh, like Kir and the Valley of Avon, they're not familiar to you, okay? Um, but Damascus, this is the Ammonites, okay? A major player uh, in the area of modern-day Syria, so just 
to the, like I said, to the north uh, east of Israel. Um, and Damascus is their capital town. Okay. And then when we get to Gaza, that's in the southeast. Think of the Gaza Strip, if you're familiar with politics today. Um, Gaza is one of the five major cities of the Philistines. Okay. So first, he talks to the Ammonites, and then he talks to the Philistines. Both of them are traditional and long-standing enemies, as well as neighbors of Israel and Judah. Um, but as he goes on, he's going to select more places. But let's, let's go back to Damascus for just a minute. Notice what his accusation is here. He says that God will punish Damascus. Why? Uh, end of verse 3 there. Because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Okay. Uh, a threshing sledge is like a giant metal plow that you drag through the grain that separates the wheat from the chaff. But here the picture is that they've used that on the people of Gilead. It sounds like a torture device. Clearly what he's referencing here is cruelty in the way that they've treated this other nation. Okay? And we'll see this consistently. Most of the accusations that Amos makes, we would label today war crimes. It's about mistreatment uh, during the great border wars of those times of other people. And so here, he criticizes the Ammonites for their treatment of those in the land of Gilead, um, that it's as if they'd been threshed um, with a heavy, heavy threshing plow. And then the same with uh, Gaza in verse 6. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Why? Because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So what had happened with the Philistines? They had taken a group of people as prisoners of war and then sold them into slavery to the Edomites. Okay? And so here, God pays attention to that and he says that judgment is coming. Now remember, Amazon or Amazon, Amos is not ministering in Damascus. Amos, as far as we know, never travels to Gaza. The message that he's giving here is a message that he gives in the northern tribes of Israel. Most likely, he does so in the capital of Samaria. So I want you to think for just a second. We're hearing this sermon of Amos live on the streets for the first time. And the first thing you hear him doing is yelling out and accusing your animosity-full neighbor of war crimes and promising that God cares, that God sees, and that God is soon going to bring judgment on them. Do you imagine this is drawing a crowd? Absolutely. This is exactly what people want to hear. They're interested in this. And so he starts with Damascus. He moves down to the Philistines. And then verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Tyre was a Phoenician city. They were merchant people. We've encountered them many times in the prophets. But here we find that like the Philistines, they made their prophets in selling slaves and transporting slaves. They were the backbone of the Mediterranean slave trade. But also we see another thing here. It says that they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Now that reference is probably lost on us, 
but effectively what Amos is accusing them of is breaking a treaty. Okay? At some point, some other nation, maybe even the nation that they had turned into slaves, had made a peace treaty with them, and they had broken it. Okay? So like I said, Amos's primary concern here with their nations around them, with their neighbors, are war crimes. Look at verse 11. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, okay, the Edomites, as I said earlier, are in the southeast. Um, these are those who descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. So they have a close tie to Israel and have always lived in close quarters to Israel. He says, I'll not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. Okay, and so what's the criticism here? that someone, it says he pursued his brother, that may very well be a reference to Israel, the descendants of Esau's brother Jacob, but it also may be another reference to a covenant, but here he takes those he should love, care for, be concerned for of this other nation, and instead he expels all of his wrath on them. He shows no mercy without relenting, no pity, and then notice it says his anger tore perpetually and he's kept his wrath forever. Okay, and so it's strong and violent anger. Therefore, verse 12, I will send fire upon Taman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. And as I said, at this point, the crowd is getting bigger. People are probably adding their amens every couple of lines as Amos is saying this. This is good news to Israel because those who have constantly hounded Israel and harmed them and hindered them are finally getting their due. God is finally going to bring just, uh, justice. And then he turns to the Ammonites. We met the Amorites at the beginning of the chapter. The Ammonites is another nation, thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open the pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. And so again, the accusation is of war crimes here the mistreatment of civilian women, and in particular, pregnant women, okay? There is no justification militaristically of this destruction. It is just evil and hateful and harmful. Um, and why did they do it? More land, right, to enlarge their border. Really, these crimes don't sound terribly ancient or even barbarian, they're common realities in the world today. They're things that we could learn about not just in the 7th century BC, which is where we're reading right now, but in the 20th century AD, and in some places even in the 21st century AD. And again, God notices, God cares, and he's going to bring justice for these injustices. So he says in verse 14, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle with a tempest on the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but that judgment of exile has been recurring. Okay, for example, go back to verse five, and the people of Syria shall go into exile into Kir. Okay, and then here at the end, we find the same thing with the Ammonites, and their king shall go into exile, he and their princes together, says the Lord. That will become significant. Chapter 2 
more of the same. Another nation, another one in the southeast corner, Moab, the Moabites, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Okay, so do you see how even some of these crimes are against one another? We've already met the Edomites. They were the recipients of slaves. They were the perpetuators of crimes. And now we see they were also the victim of war crimes. Okay? During the two centuries leading up to the days of Amos, there was constant skirmishes about the borders between these nations, constant fighting and battles. Okay? That's what it's being talked about here. And it says that their crime is that they burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Now, when we look at that, we go, all right, what's so significant about that? Effectively, what we're talking about here is desecration. Okay? Instead of having dignity for the corpse of their enemies, they desecrated it. Like Israel, all the nations in the ancient Near East revered the bones of the dead and buried their dead in ossuaries or bone boxes and preserved them. Even in the Old Testament, it calls Israel not to leave a corpse exposed out in the wilderness, but is to be properly buried. Okay? And so this is an insult to injury reality. Okay? Some believe that this may even be an attempt to interfere with the eternal fate of those whose corpses you harm. That by burning their bones to lime, which basically just means totally consuming them, that you are hindering them from the afterlife, okay? But what it is ultimately is a denial of dignity for those that you have fought against. And so he says in verse two, I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kirioth and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all his princes with him, says the Lord. Now, what we find in all of these responses is God basically says judgment is coming that will put the nations to an end, okay? Or at least their independence to an end. We'll put those who are in power over these nations and their lineage to an end. So far, we've looked at six different nations. And like I said, they have been targeted right around Israel. They're Israel's closest neighbors and greatest enemies, okay? And so the crowd is drawn together they're interested. And then, verse 4, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. Okay. Now, Judah is not an enemy neighbor. Judah is the other tribes of Israel. This doesn't mean that the northern tribes and southern tribes didn't have their differences or even their infight. Okay. In fact, the Judeans basically despised the northern tribes because in the days of Jeroboam, when the northern tribes left Judah, they set up new worship centers in Bethel and in Samaria. And so they no longer came to the temple. And so mostly, Judah saw those who had, um, had left the ten northern tribes as being apostate. And so here is Amos, a Judean, in the northern tribes, and he says, let's talk about the crimes of Judah. But there's another thing here that you might not get to the cadence of the passage, which is Judah plays a very significant uh, place numerically. We've looked at six nations, and now we get to Judah, and he is the seventh. Okay? 
Now, seven is, is a common final point on an outline in Jewish writings. It is a number of completion, okay? And when you add to the fact that Judea is kind of a surprise, right? Enemy nation, enemy nation, enemy nation. Wait, they're Israelites just like us. It feels like this is the climax of what Amos wants to say. And even that is surprising. But we can imagine that their audience is pleasantly surprised by this, and I'll show you why I say that. What have they done? For three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. Remember, Judea's primary complaint about the northern tribes were that they were apostate. And so here, Amos says, but so is Judea. They haven't kept the covenant. They haven't kept the statutes, but have followed their fathers into lies. And you can imagine, you know, some rowdy Israelites speaking up and being like, that's what I was saying, you know. Amen, finally, somebody speaks the truth, okay? We can imagine that being said, but we should also notice right here that this is different than all the other accusations we've read so far, okay? With the Ammonites, war crimes. With Tyre, war crimes. With the Philistines, war crimes. With Judea, they haven't kept the covenant. You see the distinction there? Why doesn't God say to the other nations, you haven't kept my law? Because they're not in the same relationship as Judah is with Israel. God cares about the other nations. It's not like he only has eyes for Israel. God cares about justice in all the nations. God holds all the nations accountable. But Judah is in a special position with God. He entered into the covenant. Under Moses' leadership, they became God's people and God's nation. And that came with stipulations known as the Mosaic Covenant, known as the law, but they had not been keeping them. Now, if you've been studying with us or if you're familiar with the prophets as a whole, this is Prophets 101. This is the primary reason the prophets exist, to say, you are not keeping the covenant. You need to be warned. Judgment is coming. Okay. But what I would suggest to you is that as Amos has been going about this. He is subtly laying a trap for his audience. And this encircling of their closest neighbors and greater enemies is actually a noose that he's slowly wrapped around. And Judah is the first sign that something's wrong. But what really strikes is verse 6. Thus says the Lord. At this point, everybody goes, wait, you're already done. You hit number seven on the list. The sermon is over, okay? It's, it's like the pastor who says, and in conclusion, or even worse, let's pray, and then goes back to his sermon. They're jarred at this point, and notice what he says. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. See what he does here? He gets everybody's attention. He draws everybody into God's accountability and reminds them that they are also interested in justice and then he turns it on them and says well what about your own lives okay he lays a trap for the Israelites similar to what Paul does in Romans chapter 1 Paul opens Romans chapter 1 talking about the clear path that the nations of the world have taken away from God 
that they've rejected the truth of worshiping the Creator, replaced it with falsehoods of their own mind, given them up, themselves up to debase lifestyles. And if you're a Jew and you're reading Romans chapter 1, you're nodding your head. You're going, yep, yep, that's exactly right. And it comes to a place where it kind of hits rock bottom. And then you turn to chapter 2, verse 1, and Paul says, And who are you, therefore, O righteous one, who knows all these things are wrong and yet participates them as well, and he ends up throwing Judah under the bus? And that's not Paul playing fair. <laughs> to some degree, it's Paul playing dirty. He's only drawn their attention in to talk about the nations so that he can get the righteous to realize that they are one of the unrighteous as well. Okay, One more illustration of where we see people doing this would be David when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. David has taken a woman who is not his wife, but the wife of one of his mighty men. While he's out on the front lines, David is at home. He sleeps with this woman. He impregnates her and then tries to cover it up unsuccessfully. And so he has, through, uh, through military conspiracy, the husband, Uriah, killed off. And he feels like he gets away with it. He marries Bathsheba, brings her into the house. It's, you know, close enough to the beginning of her pregnancy that nobody can count back and go, hey, wait a minute. Um, but God knows. And so he sends Nathan. And Nathan doesn't come through the front door of confrontation. He says, David, let me tell you a story. And he tells him a story about a poor man with sheep and a rich man with plenty of sheep. And the rich man is having friends over for dinner, so he sneaks into the poor man's house, takes his one and only sheep, kills it, and feeds it to his people. And David jumps out of his throne, and he says, that man will be killed. And at that point, trap is laid, you know, trap is triggered, and he just says, you're that man. You're the man, David. Okay, he evokes his sense of justice, and then turns the mirror back on David. That's what Amos does here. And that's what his real concern is. He's never again going to talk about the fate of Edom or Tyre or Gaza. His whole point is to get to Israel. And he smartly does so by drawing their attention to the crimes of those around them and therefore drawing attention to their own criminal nature. But like we saw with Judah, the crimes that are listed here are not about their mistreatment of their neighbors. Instead, notice what it says in verse 6, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Now, like the other crimes, these are mistreatments. But we're not told anywhere in here that this is a mis mistreatment of foreigners. This is a mistreatment of their own people. It's their poor neighbors, right? It's the righteous of their nation that they sell with silver, not um, you know, prisoners of war. This is an escalation. In fact, it doesn't really remove that Israel didn't do those war crimes, but it does escalate things and say, you behave this way with your neighbor. Not in times of war, but in times of peace. His great concern here is not even put in the language of Judah, just generically, that you've forsaken the covenant. But ultimately, his concern, and it'll be his concern across, 
is that you have dealt in justice with your neighbor. And so it says, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And that may be hyperbole, right? That they would value a human life as little as a pair of shoes. There's a few possibilities here. One, just by way of analogy, not because I think this is what was happening in Amos's day, but it does make the point. Consider the sweatshops in far countries that make things like shoes, right? But don't pay a living wage for that, but actually enslave people and pay them barely anything and end up devouring even their lives for the sake of a pair of sandals or for Christmas lights. That seems to be under this headline seems to be related. But another possibility is, um, is that there's a few places in ancient Near East texts, including the Bible, where the trading of a pair of sandals is tied to a, a uh, exchange of property. Okay? Think of the story of Ruth. Boaz comes to redeem property, but there's somebody who's ahead of him in the family to redeem it somebody who's closer in relationship. And so he sits down and they have a conversation and he says, well, yeah, I'd love to have more land. And he says, one stipulation, it comes with the widow of the man who the land belonged to. And he says, I'm out, I'm already married. Okay. And what happens next? He hands him his shoe. Okay. And so it may be here that what we're seeing is basically not just people sold into slavery, but sold as property into positions as property, and that's why the sandals are referenced. Verse 7 again, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. And so notice here, they neither help the poor, but more than that, they actually, you know, make their wealth on the back of the poor. They trample the poor. The idea is that they take advantage of them. But that's not all. Verse 7 continues, A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. Now that is sexual sin. That is a crossing of the boundaries that the Bible lays out where sexuality is supposed to be between a husband and a wife exclusively. Okay? And that's worth saying, because Amos is not just concerned about traditionally liberal sins, blue sins, democratic sins, the poor... And he's not just concerned about traditionally conservative, red, you know, family matters, moral responsibility sins like sexual integrity. In one breath, he ties them together. They both have to do with mistreatment of a neighbor. He addresses them both. Notice this one, verse 8. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in a pledge. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that if you loan money to a poor man that you can take a, um, a pledge for that, some sort of object of worth that says you can hold this until I pay you back, right? But it also says that they're not allowed to keep a garment overnight so that the poor aren't left sleeping in the cold because you have their cloak while you're waiting for the loan, okay? But this is worse. Are they laying down here at home with these garments? No, it says they're laying down at every altar. This is the first place where we see one of the primary concerns that Amos brings, which is that he is not talking about an atheistic 
or non-practicing religious people. He's not talking about people who would identify themselves as being non-religious. He's not talking about apostates. He is talking about very religious people. But this is how they behave. Okay. He'll come back to that. He says, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Okay. And so the idea here is of judges who use their power as, as judges to bring in property and then celebrate at the temple. Okay. Take it to Samaria and have a feast because they've had a really good year and they thank God for it, but it's all been extortion. Now, God goes on, and he starts to survey the history he has with Israel. And one of the things that we should notice, just because it's of interest, is that this history he surveys is not the history of the northern tribes. It's the history of a unified people, Judah and Israel together, the people of Israel, the ones that God brought out of Egypt. Okay. They go hand in hand, part and parcel. But look at the story he tells here in verse 9. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. The Amorites were those who lived in the land before Israel. And if you go back and you read, because of their behavior, because of their mistreatment of one another, because of their iniquity, God brings judgment upon them and gives the land to Israel. And so the first kind of exhibit A in the story where you realize something is wrong is that Israel has become like those who were judged before them. Okay. But second, it continues here. It says, um, also it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Okay. Israel knows what it's like to be oppressed. Knows what it's like to be mistreated. Knows what it's like to be slaves. In fact, the reason why the Old Testament law is so heavy on protecting the rights of those that we would call indentured servants and even calls out as a death penalty crime kidnapping another human being and selling them into slavery is because for you were slaves in Egypt. Okay? They understood this is where they came from. God had brought justice on the Egyptians and delivered Israel on top of that, he says, I led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite, and I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. You know what that is? It's leadership. He didn't just deliver them and say, now try and live up. He gave them witnesses in the prophets to remind them, to teach them, to instruct them, to point them to the right way. And he also gave them Nazarites. Now, the Nazarite vow, according to the book of Deuteronomy, was a vow that anyone could take, male or female, any class, any status in Israel, you could become a Nazarite. And basically what it was is a dedication to serve the Lord. Okay? And so we believe that for the most part, the Nazarites participated in and helped in the daily chores of the temple. But it was a volunteer position. Okay? It was a vow that you took where for a limited period of time, you served in the court. But what did they do to the Nazarites and the prophets? Continuing here in verse 11, he says, Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Nazarites weren't allowed to drink wine. It was the basis of their vow. Okay, For this period of time, 
I won't touch, and it wasn't just alcohol, but even raisins, okay? Any product of the grape was off the table. But the picture here is as if Israel pulls them aside and says, come on, man, just have a drink with us, right? And with the prophets, here they are saying, thus saith the Lord. And Israel is putting their fingers in their ears and saying, don't talk to us, don't prophesy. We don't want to hear, okay? So what we see here is a history where God has not just kept his side of the covenant, but has behaved abundantly differently than the injustice of Israel. And so, therefore, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be consequence. Verse 13, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. What's the picture here? One way to read this, and I think it's the wrong way, is like thinking of a heavy cart rolling over someone, right? Like being hit by a car. I don't think that's the point. As we'll see in the following imagery, I would suggest to you it's this. Imagine you've got a cart, the road is not paved, the, the dirt road is a little bit wet, and you overfill the cart. What happens? It gets stuck, right? It's too heavy to move, it sinks into the mud, it can't move. The idea here is that Israel is not going to be able to escape. They'll want to flee, but they won't be able to. In fact, look, he, he expands on this in verse 14. Flight shall perish from the swift. The fastest among you, the ones who are good at running, won't be able to run from what's going to happen. He says, the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Okay. Now, we should expect that this message was both surprising to the northern Israelites and probably also upsetting. Okay. In fact, we're going to see very soon that Amos is going to have to justify his saying these things. He's going to have to justify his role as a prophet at all. As was just said, they have a history of not listening to the prophets, and Amos is going to fall right in line with that. And so he continues, chapter 3, verse 1, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, Israel and Judah, the whole twelve tribes, right? Verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Okay, at first, that sentence would be jarring to the Israelites. In fact, it'd be jarring to the ancient Near East people in general. The idea is, you are our God, we are your people, therefore you'll protect us. Therefore, you'll save us. Okay, on top of that, specifically with Israel, who saw themselves as unique, as God's people, as the children of Abraham. You alone have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will forgive you. Therefore, I'll give you a pass. Therefore, there's so many answers to this that were going around in Amos' day, but his is, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. And the place to put your thinking and your meditation is on that word, therefore. He doesn't say, you are my people, but I will judge you for your iniquities. 
He doesn't say, even though you are my people, it's gone so far that I must. He says, what else would you expect? If you are my people, why wouldn't I judge you? And this is so significant. Because here, Amos nails down a miscomprehension um, that is one that we face today. Okay. Here, Israel thinks they are God's people and therefore they are untouchable. But the truth is, because they are God's people, they are held accountable. Okay. Now, it is hard to read this passage and think about the trap that Amos lays and not think about how we sometimes talk as Americans about America. Our story is not like Israel's here that's told, okay, where God miraculously calls a nation out of a barren womb and a strange man who he promises the land to in Abraham, or an enslaved people who are set free. But it is common that we tell similar narratives about America, about God's blessing on America, about God's involvement in the founding of America, the problem is we live in a day and age where we neglect the therefore that Amos makes clear on that. If that is the case, how much more are we accountable? If we truly have been privileged more than other nations, if God has been more involved in our founding and more investing in our future, how much more are we accountable for what happens next? Saying we are a nation under God or God's nation or um, founded by God-fearing people or all of these things doesn't remove consequence. It demands it. Now, to be clear, America is not Israel. America is not the people of God in the way Israel was. But is it possible that God in his providence did good to our nation? Absolutely. In fact, Amos provocatively next week is going to say, Israel, do you think you're the only nation that I moved, that I cared for, that I gave a land to? Now, Israel is totally unique, but God is God of all nations. And he's moving sovereignly in the geopolitical scale. He's involved. It's not as if God said, all right, I'm going to set the world and it's going to run the way it is, and then he just starts to tinker with one little corner of it. God is sovereign. And the only reason he can judge the other nations is because they are also accountable to him. But where we need to be careful of today, what we need to be aware of, is the tendency to see an association with God as a free pass. When again, here Amos reminds us, that heightens, that heightens the accountability. Now as I said, Amos needs to justify his existence as a prophet, especially when he comes with such bad news. And so what he does here is he lays another trap, but this one's a lot more subtle. This one, he just walks through a bunch of logical questions. The first six of them all demand the answer no. Okay. But then he leads up to the one that really matters, you know, and they have to answer consistently the same way. Look at what he says, verse three. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? It's a strange thing, isn't it? If you're traveling internationally and on every single flight and walking through every single airport, you see the same person walking next to you and you have nothing in common and you're not headed to the same place for the same reasons. What does he say here? If you see two people walking together, you know, say on the Jericho Road out in the wilderness, 
you assume they're together, that they're agreed, that they're going to the same place. Verse 4, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. You hear a lion and you think, oh, he got one, right? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing? See, here's the point. If you're a lion and you're still stalking your prey, you don't make your presence known. But once you start roaring, victory, right? It's over. So what does he say? Does anyone hear a lion? If you're hearing the sound of a lion, doesn't it mean you should look for a corpse? Verse 5, does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there's no trap set for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it's taking nothing? Right? Traps don't go off on their own. And so if traps are slapping shut, it's because things are stepping in them. Verse 6, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does a disaster come into a city unless the Lord has done it? Look at the penultimate one there at the beginning of 6. Trumpets in that day and age was, was the klaxon. It was the warning system. Okay? Imagine you're living during World War II in, um, in England or in Pearl Harbor and you hear the air raid sirens. Do you just go on doing what you're doing? No, air raid sirens mean air raid. It's the same thing here. And then he brings to the punchline. He says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Here's the point he's making. He's saying, the things that are going wrong in your history and in your present tense, Israel, is this circumstantial? Is it, is it unrelated? Is it just happenstance? He says, the disasters that you've experienced, when you experience drought, when, like in Joel, there's locusts, when you're defeated by your enemies, he says, you know what this means. Deuteronomy, in the covenant, tells you what this means. If you're experiencing the punishments laid out as curses in Deuteronomy, then you are being punished. That's his point. You see, Amos is speaking in a relatively peaceful and prosperous time. But that's not Israel's only history. It has ups and downs and difficulties. And basically, he's just saying, if we're unwilling to see God's hand in the difficulties, if we're unwilling to see God's hand of warning in the things that we're facing right now that are hard and are difficult, and let me just remind you, in Deuteronomy, and even as we'll see in Amos, that includes plagues and pestilence. Effectively, Amos wants us to hone our skills to recognizing that, yes, bad things happen to good people, but God also brings bad things on bad people to warn them of greater judgment. That's what we see throughout the book. That's what he warns is coming to all the nations. And it's true for Israel as well. They saw the bad things that happened to them as theological puzzles to solve. Problems to explain away so that they could maintain God's goodness. When the answer was right in front of them. It wasn't that God wasn't good. It's that they weren't. It's that they had forsaken God. Neglected his ways. And because of that, he was trying to get their attention. And one of the ways he did that was Amos. And that's Amos's point. Look at how he continues. He says in verse 7, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? 
He says, God is so faithful, so oriented towards mercy, before judgment comes warning. And he says, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm addressing you. That's why I'm telling you all these things. The lion is roaring. Are you going to ignore it? Are you going to be afraid? Then he says, the Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Right there he gets personal. He says, if God has given me a message, what do I do, hold my tongue? Do I ignore it? Do I say, oh, it's not a big deal or I'll get to it later? He continues here in verse 9. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod. That's a Philistine place. And to the strongholds in the land of Egypt. And say, assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. Do you see what he does here? He calls offenders from the first list and enemies of Israel. And he says, will you come and look and see what Israel is doing? He calls them as witnesses to the crimes of Israel. He says, pay attention, take heed, look at the tumults within, look at the oppressed in her midst. They do not, again, this is Samaria, this is the capital city of Israel. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of lion two legs or a piece of an ear. Now that's a weird thing. At that point, what's the point? Right? If the lion's only left behind a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, why even take him home? The reason is because if you're a shepherd and the sheep belong to someone else, this is the receipt that you didn't eat that sheep, that you didn't steal that sheep, that you didn't tuck it away, you know, in your own house, but that it was killed by a lion. It's your justification that you're a good shepherd, but lions are real. But it's also evidence of the end of the sheep, right? Okay. It's the obituary. And so notice he says, So shall the people of Israel, you who dwell in Samaria, be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Okay, if you are an average poor Israelite, you sleep on a mat. When it references here a bed and a couch, you should think of a mansion. But all that's left in this mansion is fragments. Okay. Again, he's talking about an obituary, but he's doing it in advance. And the obituary is for the wealthy of Samaria. Now, as we read these closing verses in chapter 3, starting in verse 13, I want you to notice the repeated word house. Because he uses it in a couple of different ways, but it's what ties these verses together. Verse 13. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I shall strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Now, you, you heard the word house in there, but there's one place that you probably missed because they don't translate it, and that's when it says Bethel. 
Okay, the word Beth is the Hebrew word for house. Bethel is the house of God. You may remember in the book of Genesis that Jacob, when he's passing through the wilderness, falls asleep and sees that vision of angels ascending and descending upon a ladder in heaven. And he wakes up and he says, surely this is the gateway of Bethel, of God's house. And so he names the town Bethel. But here's what had happened in Bethel. In the days of Jeroboam, in Bethel and in Samaria, he set up two golden calves and said, no longer go to the temple in Jerusalem. These are your gods. Worship them. Okay. And so the house of Bethel was no longer the house of God, but a house of idols. Okay. And so he's going to bring punishment on the household of Jacob. But when we get to verse 15, these houses are a whole nother layer. Look at what he says. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. You know what that means. It's the same reason we criticize politicians who play off like they're the middle class. We say, do you have a vacation home? Because I don't, right? They have a place to stay in the summer and they have a winter home. And then look, houses of ivory shall perish, right? That's wealth, it's opulency. And the great houses shall come to an end, which is just another way to say mansion. And as we will see next week and the closing week in Amos, the wealthy is a primary people that he wants to address and target. Because their wealth um, is established in unjust ways, that there's a direct juxtaposition in the days of Amos between the wealthy and the starving poor. That it's not just a distribution of wealth, but that the wealthy made themselves wealthy by impoverishing the poor. And also that their wealth has created a opulence and a lethargy and is ultimately an idolatry, okay? And so he's going to address all of those things. In fact, just, just a preview. Look at the opening line of chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, okay? Basically, cows of Bashan would be the equivalent of saying, all you fat women of 90210. Okay. Bashan is the wealthy district. The cows of Bashan are these women who were fat in their opulence. And he says, let's talk about you. Okay. The real housewives of Samaria. So those are going to be the primary issues we'll see in the coming weeks. But again, I want you to notice that Amos's primary concern here all falls under the Deuteronomic heading of justice and injustice of oppression and mistreatment of others. And he says, because of that, judgment is coming. Let's pray. Father, we look in this book and we see that you care about war crimes. You care about how the nations treat one another you care about endless and inappropriate wars. Whether there may be a justification for a just war or not, Lord, the world is full clearly and undeniably with unjust wars. And you see, and you will bring justice. But we also know, Lord, that you care about those who take your name, those who attach their history and their presence and their own desires and purposes and plans to your name. And you look and you see and you require justice of those who know the God who is just.
I pray, Lord, for our nation. We thank you, Lord, for the places where your providence and your grace has given us abundance and peace, a land for ourselves, safety and security. But it is very difficult for us to distance ourselves from the accusations that Amos makes here. And I pray that we wouldn't make the mistake that Amos's audience makes, that we would just smear over those things with a veneer of religiosity and justification that we are the people of God. Instead, Lord, let the repentance be true and let it be deep. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.